Father, thank you for, uh, for the chance to worship you today um, and to celebrate you, the birth of Jesus, and that gift that um, for us is alive every day. Thank you, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. And you can be seated. Well, I hope you had a good Christmas and that you're tuning up for a, a great new year here uh, in all things. Well, today we are in the last week of our series that we began at the beginning of December. We've been looking at a single psalm each week uh, to help us celebrate the coming of Jesus at Christmas. And we've seen that that the promises that were made hundreds of years before Jesus were born uh, were made complete at the coming of Jesus. And our theme verses reflect our theme verse for this whole series pointed that out and points it out. And it's 2 Corinthians 1.20 on the slide in your outline. It says, for no matter how many promises God has made... They are yes in Christ. And so through him, through Jesus, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. And so that verse is just kind of wrapped up and and kind of encompassed this whole series. And we'll continue with that and finish it today. So each week we've looked at the wonder of Christmas in a bunch of different ways. And we've seen the promise of hope and of love and of joy and the promise of peace. And these four things have lined up with the Advent calendar, and we've enjoyed that part of preparing for Christmas as well. I know the lighting of the candles each week by a different family and in all of its different forms, there has been kind of a special opportunities to celebrate too. But after those four weeks of Advent and our Christmas Eve services, and I hope you got to one because they were just amazing. Hopefully you were able to make it. Uh, but today we're going to focus on the promise of blessing as found in Psalm 2. One more psalm. Now, this idea of the promise of blessing sounds like Christmas for an adult, right? I mean, you know, here it is, Christmas, and the kiss comes and go, but an ongoing gift of blessing in its fullest form sounds really good. Um, I could use a good ongoing blessing, blessing right about now. A Christmas gift that keeps on giving, right? So there we are. Bring it on, Pastor John. Well, let's take a look at Psalm 2 and see what it has to say. Now, first, big picture before we look at the psalm. As an overview, Psalm 2 is another royal psalm. And we've actually looked at several royal psalms during this series. It's a psalm really that was written as a coronation of a king of that time, a king like King David, if you've heard of him, and a deal series on him, or King Solomon. But it's also a psalm that points very distinctly to the future and eternal king, And that is the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus himself, the Son of God. And so in this psalm, just like the other royal psalms, we can see both aspects of the coronation of of an, an historical king, but also the proclamation of the King of Kings, God's anointed one, that is Jesus. And, and, and in this psalm, it's all over the place. It's so easy to see. Uh, interestingly enough, this psalm is quoted uh, many, many times in the New Testament, uh, in the Gospels, all the way through the book of Revelation. And it's very obviously a clear statement of Jesus' coming to earth that we've seen at Christmas and of his, he, of his eternal rule. And really, it was uh, that eternal rule and that concept that the early church just held on to with, with eagerness and hope, especially when times were difficult. So a royal psalm, and we're in purple kind of to celebrate that, a promise of blessing, let's get to it. It sounds great. Maybe just what you need for a new year. Only as I opened up Psalm 2 several weeks ago and got started on looking at it, and I dove into the, my studies, it, things went a little different for me. Oh, sure, this is a royal psalm. And it absolutely is a psalm of blessing. But as we look for God's blessing, we also get to wade through a lot of other things, and they got my attention. I think they'll get yours this morning as well. 
And so if you want to grab your outline, there's just a few fill-in-the-blanks. I don't want you to work too hard this morning. I know between the holidays, things can get a little bit, you know, low energy or something here. But I put down on your heading Psalm 2's wake-up call, also known as God's two-by-four upside the head. And, you know, it might sound a little irreverent, and when I, then the thought occurred to me, I don't know, a week or so ago, and I thought, gosh, church, and I thought, maybe that's exactly what we need. It's almost New Year's, and kind of that two-by-four kind of a goofy concept that might make some sense. And uh, so, but how we get two-by-four is this. We're looking at Psalm 2, and it breaks up into four very easy to break up and to see parts. Each are three verses, one through three, four through six, seven through nine. 11, uh, 10 through 12, just three verses, Psalm 2 by 4, four sections of Psalm 2, and it's right there for us. And, and, and we'll read Psalm 2, we'll see that it's a wake-up call to all the nations, all leaders, all people of all time, and that includes us. Uh, we're people of all time. So when the two by four came to me, like I say, it was like, well, we're just going to run with this, and maybe it'll get a little laugh, maybe it'll help make it a little bit memorable and kind of sink in a little bit. And again, to talk about the actual, not just that it's Psalm 2, four parts, but the physical 2 by 4 I almost brought one in and thought, no, we don't need that. We know what a 2 by 4 is. I don't know about you, but God speaks to me sometimes in subtle and quiet tones, and I get it right away sometimes. Thank you, Lord, for those times. <laughs> but other times he speaks, and I just don't hear the subtle and the gentle tones. John? John? John, John, out comes the two by four, John, whack, oh, what, God, you got my attention now, I don't know if it's just me or if that's true in your life as well, sometimes I need the two by four to get, get my attention, God uses that, and if you've had that experience, I'm sorry for you, but sometimes that's just the way it rolls, for me anyway, and that's a bit of what we get today in Psalm 2, a warning and some significant words are spoken before the path of blessing is laid out. And God wants us to know that he's serious about this. It's two by four time, if you get my drift. So we're going to head in that direction today. We're going to look at the four parts of Psalm 2 and see if we can move beyond the two by four activity that God does from time to time and really see this beautiful path to God's blessing uh, that he lays before us as we enter 2020, this new year and this new decade. So here we go. Psalm 2's wake-up call, as it says in your outline, also known as God's two-by-four upside the head. First of all, we'll see in Psalm 2, the first point this made is that the world rebels. The world rebels. It's a simple word to write down, and I put in parentheses, in vain, because that's what the psalm says. It's truth that's just laid out there. I want to read those first three verses. Again, if you want to open in your Bible, you can follow along in your outline or the slides. It says, Why? <laughs> Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against the anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And we'll stop right there. There's the first of the four, the first three verses. Here we see the nations raging and the peoples plotting, the kings preparing and the rulers getting together to plot and plan to overthrow God and his anointed. It is flat-out rebellion as for some reason they feel like the bonds and claim that God has on them are oppressive. And so it's laid out before us. And so I have to ask the question, what is it about rebellion, about rebellion in general and this rebellion that gets such a, a, a leading headline in Psalm 2? Well, as we take a look at the Bible, we can see that rebellion is a unique and a huge 
sin, a pervasive sin that, that has unbelievable consequences. It's your rebellion is always rebelling or coming against and the casting off of some sort of authority. And that's usually God, but of course, rebellion can show up against parents, against governing officials, against really any leaders. You can see it in the schools. You can see it all over. And rebellion is always destructive. And, and we're told in the Bible that if you think about it, it's Satan's original sin, God's original creation with the angels. Satan was God's number one created, most beautiful angel. And uh, Satan decided he wanted to be God. So he rebelled against God's authority, wanting to be God himself. And that rebellion got him kicked out of heaven along with a third of the angels, which are now demons as we call them today. And he lost his standing as God's number one angel because of his rebellion. So the very first problem was rebellion. And of course, then we see that rebellion was Satan's original temptation to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It was the first temptation that became the first original sin. The same thing, wanting to be out from under God's control. You can be God yourself. Oh, just eat this fruit. That's really what this is about. You can be out from under control, and it's rebellion. Well, Satan, the demons, they almost seem to indwell this sin. And I, I don't want to overstate this, but it says in 1 Samuel 15, 23, I bumped into this verse a, a number of years ago, and it was kind of a, what do I do with this? It says in 1 Samuel 15, 23, it's not, not in your slides or, or your notes, so if you want to jot that down, you can. 1 Samuel 15, 23, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft or divination. And so the prophet speaking is equating rebellion to witchcraft. And, and actually, for some people who've done significant study, they're actually saying there's demonic attachments and satanic forces involved in rebellion, just as if you were practicing witchcraft. And you'd say, man, I would never do witchcraft, but boy, rebellion, I mean, come on, that's different. I don't know if God sees it differently. It says here he doesn't. Now, if you read the Old Testament law, you can see that God's commands and penalties in those pre-Jesus days regarding rebellion were just flat out extreme and severe. And, and it was pointed at, it was talking about rebellious laws would come out. God talked about rebellious kids that would be ongoing in rebellion and, and people. And, and, and the, the consequences were extreme and huge. See, God recognized this isn't just another one of those, oh yeah, no big deal kind of sins. So when we look at Psalm 2, why do those darn rulers and nations and kings insist on rebelling? I mean, I know if I was a king or ruler, I wouldn't rebel. I'd just be happy to be king. Except I'm not so sure. You see, these verses aren't just pointed at rulers attempting to kick God off the throne so they can be the unopposed ruler. They're pointed at each one of us. And that's the first whack of the two by four. Because I can say, oh yeah, those bad rulers and kings that are off there making bad choices. Oh, look at them. God's saying, John, John, right? Insert your name here. They're pointed at us. We are some of those peoples that are talking about there. They think that self-governing is pretty cool, at least sometimes. And I have to ask, why are we drawn to rebellion? I mean, Satan often tempts with it, and he keeps at it because it's been working since the Garden of Eden worked there. Why stop when you've got a good thing going? You see, rebellion, it seems to lift us to a place of undue honor, you know, something that we don't deserve but we like all too often. And we see it working sometimes. You know, rebellion kind of makes us feel good. It works at least for a moment, so it's attractive. And quite honestly, we don't want to be under anyone else's rule. How many times have you said it or heard it? Don't tell me what to do. I'm reflecting on a 
household of five kids. <laughs> it's speaking maybe to each other more than to me, but don't tell me what to do. We don't want to be under someone else's rule. We don't want to be controlled by anyone. It's the American way, right? I mean, we moved here. I was part of that group, right? Rebelling against Britain <laughs> hundreds of years ago. Come on, we're going to rebel and we're going to make this happen. It kind of seems to be in our DNA. It's our culture today. If there is an ultimate authority in my life, then I'm going to be the one who sits on that throne. And I'm going to resist and rebel against anyone who tries to tell me otherwise. It's, that's all around us in our, in our culture, in our nation. So we rebel. And our culture even views being a rebel as cool, right? At, at least sometimes. I mean, I go way back to the 50s before I was born. The rebel without a cause, James Dean. I mean, I've, I've seen it, you know, because you can see old movies now easily. The rebel without a cause. And since then, boy, that cool person in the black leather jacket who's going against culture and society. Ooh, he's cool, right? And it's just kind of there, and it's happened. It's gone on and on to today. But I think if we take a closer look at ourselves and not just the obvious rebels in our world, we're going to have our eyes opened. You know, we can look at those and go, oh, those are the rebellious ones. Those, those, those are those surly teenagers, you know, or those are those activists that are rebelling against just, they're always making a stand and making news with what they're demonstrating against. You know, it's those people there. And again, the two by four activity is, wait, look at your heart. And you ask yourself, how do I rebel? How do I rebel in my heart, if not in my words and my actions? Things come to mind to me like, what, what if we don't want to forgive others? That's hard, I know, but come on, I don't need to do that. But if I don't forgive others, that's rebelling against God's plan and God's demonstration. Jesus is modeling on the cross of forgiveness. It's God's command for us. If we don't want to love our enemies, uh, so we push them away, barely tolerating them to their faces, isn't that a reform of rebellion against Jesus who came and lived a very different life than that and gave very different commands than that? Saying, Jesus, that's not my way. Or we rebel when we don't want to deny ourselves any pleasures of the world. I, I just started thinking through and I went, that's going to be a very long talk. So many things in our lives can be seen as rebelling against Jesus, what he modeled for us and what he calls us to do and what he calls us to be. And rather than just say, oh, those are some struggles, let's call it what it is. There's rebellion there. It says, I want to make the choice about how I live my life, Jesus. I want to sit on the throne. But the psalmist says in Psalm 2, why even bother? That's these first couple verses. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? It's basically saying, what's the point? It goes nowhere. It's going to lead to nowhere long term. It leads to brokenness and death. And sure, we do it because somehow we buy into the lie that we can, that we can make it happen on our own, that we're enough ourselves to be the captain of our own ship. <laughs> and there's the two by four whack, you know. The whack being that I'm a big rebel too, if I'm honest. You see, anytime I take Jesus off the throne of my life and put anything else there, another person, my job, material things, image, my dreams, money, myself, I'm being a rebel. And I'm, and I'm, I'm going against God. Well, that's part one of the two by four. <laughs> Let's move on to number two quickly. Um, what is God's response to this large-scale rebellion? You know, is he there? Is his, is his response to panic and start trying to figure out how to quell the rebellion and, and regain control over a lost kingdom? 
Is he going to try to come up with some desperate land to save his fading power, a desperate plan? No, because none of that's happening. Number two, we see in Psalm 2 that God responds, and I put in parentheses what it says there, he laughs. (laughs) He laughs. This rebellion that's here and that the nations are saying, we're going to break off the chains that bind us in God's control, and God says he laughs. Psalm 2, verses 4 through 6, it says, He who sits in the heavens, he laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. I'll define that in a second if if that's too much. (laughs) Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king, capital K, on Zion, my holy hill. God is shaking his head at the rebellion and disbelief and saying, Are you kidding me? First, I saw the laugh is like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know, kind of the fatherly laugh at the little kid who's trying to do something that they just can't do. Well, that's part of it. But we see in the verses that follow that, that it isn't just a laugh, that it's, ha, what? Who, who's king here? What is going on? The, the word derision is laughing at an enemy's threats, ridiculing them, really. It's the two-by-four in action. It's him saying, you think your rebellion is effective? Whack! <laughs> you know, what are you thinking here? Listen, just because you want to live like God's authority isn't real doesn't make it any less real. You catch that? You may want to live like God's authority isn't real, but it doesn't make it any less real. There's no slide for this, but Isaiah 40, 22, it's not in your outline. It says, he, speaking of God, sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. Now, it's not talking about that God doesn't love us there, but it gives you that picture of the majesty, the huge God looking down on earth and seeing all the grasshoppers down here. How's that grasshopper rebellion going for you? God going, this, it, it's, it's insignificant in terms of its effect of, of what it's trying to do here. And again, it's not speaking that he doesn't love us and all of that. Then we see the terms in these verses, wrath and fury, it's, that it's terrifying the rebels. God says, wait a second, this doesn't go unpunished. And you have to ask, what happened to their pride and rebellion? Just a couple verses ago, we saw them going, they're plotting and they're planning, and all of a sudden God goes, what? And they're like, whoops. And they're quaking in their boots here. Well, what happened to all that pride and rebellion? You know, their big talk, their big attitudes, let's cast away God's cords and bonds and and set us up, you know, as, as ourselves as rulers. And the big talk goes away when the master walks in, doesn't it? right? That's kind of like the employee going, boy, if the boss was here, boss was here, I'd sure tell him off. I'd give him a piece of my mind. Oops, he's coming. (laughs) You know, and you kind of go back to work and be quiet here. The big talk that happens over here when the authority's not there, but when it's in present, everything quiets down. Here in Psalm 2, God basically says, you ain't the king. You don't threaten me. When it comes, when it comes down to it, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God says, I put the king in place. He's the king of kings. It ain't you. And he's there to stay. My holy hill, the throne, not the little throne, the throne. Friedrich Nietzsche, back in the 1800s, a proponent and a follower of the enlightenment when it's made its way from Europe to, uh, to America. And, uh, 
I have a, a, a friend of mine that actually calls it the endarkenment because of the negative effects it's had on us and our spirituality and faith around the world. But as a part of the enlightenment, when we discovered that science and proof has the answers to all things, and he made that famous statement in 1883, God is dead. Well, he did that in 1883. It was part of him saying not that God died, but he basically was saying God was never alive. Enlightenment has proven to us that God never was, and we don't need him. Rebellion? Now, sometimes it makes its way to a bumper stick or something like that, but, you know, God's laughing response. Let's go ahead and see that next slide. So Friedrich Nietzsche in 1883 says God is dead. <laughs> 17, late, 17 years later when he died. And, and God loves, I don't know Friedrich Nietzsche and where his heart was at with the Lord, but there's kind of an irony to that, isn't it? Because here we are hundred and almost 20 years later, and is God dead? I'm sorry, is God dead? No. Is Friedrich Nietzsche dead? Yes. And there's a certain irony there, isn't it? You can say that God is dead just like you can say that God's authority isn't real, but it doesn't change reality. It doesn't change reality here. And so there is a part of this that makes me chuckle. There's some sadness there too, but, but we get a chance to say that, you know what? There, there, there's a reality to rebellion that leads to death and God continues on as, as king of kings. Well, the third section of Psalm 2 here that we'll move into is that the next three verses basically say that the son, this is Jesus, rules, and he rules over all. The son rules, and he rules over all. We see that the people rebel early. Then we see God's response to that and his laughter, and then he makes this statement. And in fact, this is now Jesus himself speaking, the king himself, as this third part of the two by four in Psalm 2. So let's, let's look at these next couple of verses. It says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, so picture Jesus now speaking. So I will tell, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. God's begotten son, right? Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus says, God the Father says, I am his begotten son, and, and I am God's chosen king. Not just over Israel, not just now over a small kingdom, but over all nations and all the earth, over all people of all time. They belong to me. They are my possession. That's Jesus' statement here, because God has given that to me. Now, as we look at these verses, it brings up a little bit of what I'd say dissonance here in verse Verse 9, you see, it's Christmas time, and we celebrate the birth of sweet and gentle little baby Jesus, right? You know, here's this Jesus in a major and the cuddly little baby. And, and, and yet these verses, we see King Jesus wielding a rod of iron, a scepter, really, and he's dealing with rebellion in a very unsweet and ungentle way. <laughs> it's the two-by-four again, two-by-four again, and he's whacking with it. And so there's this almost this, yeah, Jesus, baby Jesus. Oh, wait a second. This is King Jesus, and sometimes he means business. Now, God is loving, yes, absolutely yes. He's slow to anger, definitely. 
many places in the Bible, a couple places in several Psalms, it says that the Lord is merciful and gracious and he's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So when we see the picture of this King Jesus and it talks about him, you know, dashing the clay to pieces and all that stuff, we don't see an angry God who's pointing his finger at you looking to bust you up. We see a loving God who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But just so you don't think he lets us play our games and that there are no consequences, we also see a king who is going to be king over all. And that means if a fighting rebellion comes up, the real and anointed king will, anointed king will put it in its place. God deals severely with rebellion in his time and in his way, but he deals with it. And it's kind of an intense picture here, but I want to be clear about something you see, when we start talking about rebellion and Jesus, and it says this iron rod or this scepter, and he just kind of smashes into the pottery and, and just breaks it into pieces, I want to be clear that Jesus doesn't swing his iron scepter and dash to pieces any and all of us that ever rebel. If it was so, we'd all be a bunch of pottery dust, wouldn't we? I mean, have you ever rebelled? Don't have to raise your hand. But yeah, we've, you know, in today, <laughs> this week, but there's been times in our lives when we've rebelled, and it's not saying if you ever rebel, Jesus is going to just take you out and mash you. Okay, that's not here. Uh, um, what God is referring to here is the ongoing prideful rebellion that won't, that will not bend a knee, even when faced with the truth of Jesus. I won't submit. I won't surrender. I won't give up trying to be king over you, Jesus. And it's going to continue, and it's going to continue. And God says, I need to resort to some extreme means to reach you, but also to take care of this rebellion. And the two-by-four turns metal and does some serious damage. The nations rebel. I rebel. Ouch. God responds and goes, what are you doing? I love you, but you're not the king. I've put the king and the third section says he is the king. He rules over all, and whatever it takes... Even if it's not till the end times, the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. There will be a time when you will bend your knee. Everybody will. Now, we're three quarters of the way through Psalm 2 and not a mention of blessing to this point. <laughs> see see my, my like, ooh, when I dove into this Psalm looking for, oh, this will be a great New Year's blessing thing. But we're there now. But to make the blessing a true blessing, we have to look at the other part of things, don't we? Because blessing doesn't just come. Blessing is a result of relationship. So um, we see massive rebellion on a large scale, but the rebellion can pull at our own individual hearts. We see God laugh. We see that Jesus is his chosen and anointed king, and it all sets up this moving into the fourth part. God's path to blessing is how I put that there. God's path to blessing. And I want to read these last few verses, then we're going to break them down. And it's pretty obvious what's here, but in light of what we've read till now, it's important. Psalm 20, 10, excuse me, Psalm 2, 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And there's these little series of little sound bites, and I thought, do I try to get clever and combine them? Well, I just want to touch on each one. It says, be wise. Be wise. He's saying, think beyond yourself. See, see the big picture, not just your immediate desires. And he says, when rebellion starts sounding good, stop for a second and go, wait a second. Be wise here. 
Foolishness leads to elevating yourself and, and other things unto God's place. So be wise. And he goes on to say, be warned. Warning was already here, but he wants to say again because he's serious. Step away from your rebellion. There are consequences and it's not pretty. So be wise and be warned. Third, serve God. Serve God with fear, it says. God wants us to serve. He wants us to, to take that step, but do it with fear. And a, Fear is proper understanding of who God is, not scared to death, but an understanding of a giant God that says, I get to serve him. He allows me to serve him. He didn't need me, but I get to serve him. It says rejoice, rejoice with trembling. And I wrote down rejoice with proper awe because rejoice with trembling, that's really what it is. You know, I'm in the midst of serving, but not down on my knees in total fear that, but, but I'm down, I get to serve God. And at the same time, I get to rejoice at this God that I serve loves me so much. And with trembling is with the proper are going, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. I'm one of those little grasshoppers that Isaiah talked about. Yet he loves me so much. He's a huge God that's bigger than I can comprehend. And then here's this biggest concept that I think wraps it up the best. Submit to Jesus. Submit to Jesus. And that's when it says, kiss the son. Submitting to Jesus is bending your knee before the king. And I love the idea of kiss the son. It's, it's, it's the king and it's the kissing of the king's ring right, that takes place out of homage, out of honor. It's, it's the kissing of his feet or reflect upon the, the sinful woman that's talked about in the Gospels who comes in and, 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 and cry, her tears on Jesus' feet and kisses his feet and feels privileged to be able to do that. I get to, I get to kiss the son in a beautiful way and submit to him. He, he is the king. And finally then, to trust him to provide safety and refuge. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. That's a trusting thing. Jesus, I'm going to come underneath you in the storm and take refuge in you because you're going to take care of me better than I can take care of myself. In fact, what I'm learning is, Jesus, I'm going to come underneath your refuge even when it's not storming because you've got a better place for me. Because I know for me, I'm like, I know Jesus is nearby. I can take refuge when I need to. He's right here. Thank Jesus. Hold on to that, and I'll do my own thing over here. When things get really bad, then I'll duck under the cover. No, live. Live in refuge. Live underneath the protection and the guidance of Jesus. This is where the word blessed comes in, because we can be in relationship and receive his love and protection from the one who can protect you. We can trade our rebellion where we're trying to take refuge in ourselves and other things and move into the blessing of safety and protection. So the real question today, for today, as we head into the new year, it's a new decade, the roaring 20s, here we go again, right? Heard somebody say that. Who, who do you want to place on the throne of your life today, this year? Because even though Jesus is the king of all, over all, he will let you choose who you, who you want to rule in your life. He's going to let you choose that. And you can choose to submit to Jesus, the king, and receive his protection and his blessing and his guidance. Or you can take that place yourself. Or you can put someone else or something else there. You can do that, but it puts you in a place of rebellion and outside the plan of God and the blessing of God. And it's your choice. 
if you do choose to place Jesus on the throne and kiss the son in submission, then would you allow him to make you look and act and think more like Jesus? Because that's what that involves. I'm coming, I'm coming under your refuge. I'm clothing myself with Christ. I'm going to become more like Jesus because that's the job of the Holy Spirit inside you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. One of his primary jobs is to empower you and to lead you into an abundant life in Jesus. And that's a choice that you get to make today. You maybe have never asked and received Jesus into your heart and your life and allowed him to be king. But maybe, I know for many of us, we've made that choice somewhere in the past, but it's your daily choice to say, who am I putting on the throne today? Would you pray with me? Lord God, thank you for this morning and the chance to wade through Psalm 2 that went in a different direction than I expected, Lord, when I started looking at it. And yet what a refreshing thing to see that there is a, an option of rebellion, but a God who loves me so much, he gives me a much, much better plan. Father, thank you for that. Thank you that you allow me to make the choice of who and what I put on the throne of my life and that you do that for each one of us. God, I choose you. Jesus, I choose you even today and even right now. Um, and I pray that's true for each one of us here. God, that you would reveal to us our rebellion. If we need the two by four, God, so be it. If that's what it takes. But reveal to us the ways that we rebel, that we offend you. And, and help us be more like Jesus. And Father, I pray if there's even one person here today, maybe watching online or maybe here in the church service, God, who's never made the decision to receive Jesus and his forgiveness and his love and his refuge and his blessing, I pray that you would make that decision now if you're there. And you do that very simply by putting your faith and trust in him. You say, I believe in you, Jesus. I believe that you're the king, that you were born and you lived and died and raised from the dead for me. And then you ask for his forgiveness. He promises to forgive you everything for everything you've done that offends him. And then you ask him to lead your life, admitting that when we lead it, it goes so wrong. You ask him to come and to lead your life as your king, and you take refuge in him. He promises to give you new and eternal life. And a part of that is the eternal blessing. Father, we want to receive that blessing today. Thank you for giving a pathway that simply says duck under the refuge of Jesus, away from rebellion and into relationship. In Jesus' name, amen.